Our scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads and four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When, he, when they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door! You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said to her, It must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus and trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food Supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish.
Thanks be to God. All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we uh, come to you this morning as our king, uh, who has given us this word for our good. Help us as we uh, help us as we look at it, uh, as we consider it together to be able to hear and see uh, what it is you want us to hear and what it is you want us to see. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, I, uh, I did not make slides for this week, so I'll invite you to open up a Bible, whether that's uh, o- you know, opening up your favorite Bible app or one of those things with pages and ink, um, and, and join me, because we are going to be looking at a couple of things. I want to start with the last verse. The, the last verse says that uh, Bernice read for us says, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Now, if, if you could just for a moment suspend your knowledge of everything that Bernice read up until that point, and if you were to hear that, what would you presuppose had happened that would lead to the word of God spreading and flourishing, this kind of huge success that the word of God seems to be having at this point? If I'm honest, uh, what I would think is that all kinds of open doors had presented themselves for the church. Uh, I would think that uh, maybe Christians have gotten into positions of uh, prestige and prominence. And so as a result, uh, there, are, there are people with influence uh, in different places. I would think that all kinds of really great things have been going on. And uh, if you remember, kind of the, what we've been trying to do with this series is really work against the, 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 the subtle nuance that's behind that. We have this presupposition that in order for the church to flourish, in order for the word of God to spread and flourish, that things have to be going really well. And the reason we have that presupposition is because we've come out of this period of history known as Christendom, this period of time where the church has had a privileged voice, a privileged position. Uh, And so it's really easy for us to think that in order for the church to have success, in order for, and what is even how you even measure success, right? Uh, But in order for the word of God to spread and flourish, that things have to be going really well. Uh, this is, in part, I, I, I made reference to this uh, earlier in the series. I'll make reference to it again just in passing. But this is one of the, uh, the if you think of like the teaching of Christian nationalism, it's teaching us that it's as the church has power and prominence, as Christianity has power and prominence, that things will go well. That runs counter to what we're seeing in the story. Because what we're seeing in the story is not that everything was going really well. What we're seeing in the story is a movement from religious opposition, social ostracization, to state-sponsored executions. That's, that's what this passage brings us to. And so Peter is doing ministry in a context in which the kind of opposition that the church was facing was really significant. Uh, we're not doing ministry in a context as where the opposition is as strong as that. But we certainly are, similarly to Peter and the other apostles, in a time period where Christianity doesn't have that privileged position anymore. And so the the reference that I've been making for us is that we're looking at the book of Acts that is is written for us and describing for us what ministry was like in a pre-Christendom context. 
So that as we are trying to faithfully follow Jesus in a post-Christendom context, we've got some ability to see how our brothers and sisters in the faith have done that in the past. So the word of God is spreading and flourishing. How does that happen? What we see, first of all, is the opposition to the word of God. We're going to look at the story of Herod. Uh, And really, Herod is kind of the principal person we're going to be looking at uh, this particular morning. It's a really interesting story. And then secondly, we're going to look at the way that the word of God spreads and flourishes. All right, so let's first of all look at, uh, at the opposition. So now we're dealing with Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod who is uh, Jesus' birth, nativity, the Magi go to Herod. Uh, that's Herod the Great, all right? Uh, he's kind of the, 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 the dad of the Herodian monarchy. Uh, then, uh, Herod, um, Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas is the Herod who beheads John the Baptist and who is uh, involved in the trials of Jesus. And then Herod Agrippa the first is the Herod that we're talking about today. Okay. So three different Herods. Herod kills James, the brother of John, not to be confused with James, the brother of Jesus that Peter makes reference to at the end of the passage. Uh, Lots of names that, you know, it's like everybody wanted to name their kid the same name, right? Um, Actually, Herod is a royal title. So what happens is that Herod arrests James. It seems as if he's trying to get the approval of the Jewish people. And there's a reason for that. We're going to see that in a second. And we're told that he's killed with the sword. So that tells us that this is not just Remember Stephen, he's preaching, and then all of a sudden everybody kind of, there's this like flurry of passion, and they go outside and they stone him to death. Uh, this, for it to say that it was, he was killed by the sword means that this was a state-sponsored execution. So there's this ramping up that's happening in the way that the church is facing opposition. And it's really important for us to take a step back and review what's been going on. Because if we're not careful, if we just like, we're popping in and out, and it's been months since we looked at some of these earlier passages, it's easy to forget the context in which the church was doing its ministry, the context in which the church was growing. Uh, And it's easy for us to forget Jesus's own words in John chapter 15, where he says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts. So uh, by way of review, Acts chapter, we're going to do this really fast. Acts chapter four. In Acts chapter four, the priests and the Sadducees bring in Peter and John and they say, stop talking about Jesus. They don't do that. Uh, In Acts chapter five, the high priests and the Sadducees, so same group of people, once again bring in Peter and John and say, we told you to stop talking about Jesus. Why are you still talking about Jesus? And at this point, we're told they begin to figure out how can we kill them, okay? In Acts chapter six and seven, the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is the religious governing body. It's partly Sadducees. It's partly high priests. But now all of a sudden, there's a little bit more of of authoritative nature to it because it's the whole Sanhedrin. They bring in Stephen 
They, Stephen gives an account of his faith and then everybody gets super ticked off. They drag Stephen outside and they stone him to death. So he is killed. In Acts chapter eight, we are told about a guy by the name of Saul. He is a Pharisee, also part of the religious establishment. And we're told that he is ravaging the church and Christians are getting out of Jerusalem as fast as they can. In Acts chapter 9, the second half of Acts chapter 8, Saul becomes a Christian. In Acts chapter 9, we're told that the people in Damascus and the people in Jerusalem, in two different episodes, we're told that the people in Damascus and the people in Jerusalem are fed up with Saul, and now they're trying to kill him. And then in Acts chapter 12, the passage that we're looking at this morning, we see that James, the brother of John, so remember, Peter, James, and John are Jesus's three closest friends, okay? So this is one of Jesus's closest friends on earth. James is killed. Uh, So it moves from the religious leaders being fed up and trying to get rid of this movement to then by the time that Paul becomes a Christian, it's not just the religious leaders. Now we see that it's becoming more socially acceptable. More groups of people are beginning to think really badly about Christianity to the point where it gives Herod enough standing, enough leg to be able to go, oh, okay, I can, I can press into this and I'm not going to get an uproar from the Jewish people that's going to alert Rome and then Rome's going to come down on me. Remember, the Herods are politicians, right? Uh, And it says that after he kills James, everybody approves. So he's like, well, if I can get rid of James, let me cut the head off. Let me get Peter. And that's where we find ourselves. Peter is arrested. Uh, And this is not our experience here in the United States, but it's absolutely the experience of brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Uh, I think I've made reference to some friends of ours that live, that we knew uh, uh, in Boston who are from Nigeria, uh, husband and wife and their two children. And uh, they came to the United States in order to get education. Uh, But the political climate against Christians in Nigeria has gotten to the point where they're not able to go back. Uh, It's just not possible for them. They've had to seek asylum in the United States because in her family in particular have had people who've been kidnapped because of their religious faith by Muslim extremist groups. Um, so, so that may not be our experience, but we see that around the world, this is the experience of brothers and sisters where the opposition to what Jesus is doing in the world is real and, uh, and, 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 and deadly. But for us, right, we talked about the concept of being a contrast community. For us, the difficulty is that there is a price to pay for following Jesus, right? The price might be that you get passed over for promotion at work. The price might be that people think you're strange, right? The price might be the loss of family, the loss of friends. The price might be any number of different things, but that's the cost of following Jesus, uh, and so, uh, that, so there is a, while it's different, while we see what's happening in the book of Acts is different than what we experience today, at least here in San Diego, there's a resonance there. All right. Now I want to do is look at the second part of the story. 
And when we look at the second part of the story that we see is that in spite of that, the word of God spreads and flourishes. But how on earth does it do that? Well, in the middle, we've got this account of Peter's, uh, Peter escaping from prison. It's actually really fascinating. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll share this with you. There's this really interesting uh, kind of parallelism that the passage is doing. I was struck as I was studying it this week, I was like, why on earth are we given the story about Herod being eaten by worms? Like, it doesn't make sense, right? Until you realize that the first part of the story is mirrored in the second part of the story. And so when, you, when, when all of a sudden that opened up for me, I was like, oh, wait a minute, let me find what's the turning point. What's the turning point of the story? So the, the story is Herod arrests, kills James. He arrests Peter. Peter is imprisoned and he's shackled. He's like, he's going to die the next day right? That's what's going to happen. There's going to, there's going to sham trial. He's getting ready. He's thinking I'm done. And so uh, an angel shows up, says, Peter, put on your clothes, get your shoes on. Let's go. Uh, Peter thinks it's a vision. He's not even quite sure what's going on. And, and so he's got, there are at least four guards, at least four guards watching Peter right now. Like this is maximum security prison, okay? And he gets out like no problem, right? He's out on the street. He comes to his senses and realizes what's going on. And this is what we read in verse 11. This is the, this is the hinge. This is the key, okay? If you have a Bible and you'd like to mark up your Bible, circle this verse. Then Peter came, and found, came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And so then what happens is the, the, the structure of the story then begins to go backwards, right? Uh, uh, and so Peter's confused as an angel. And then we go back to the scene about Herod. Uh, and we will look at the scene about Herod in a second. And then we have this what might seem like a throwaway line, the word of God spread and flourished. We're going to come back to that word, but that word and verse 11 are connected to each other. Okay. The word spreading and flourishing does not happen without verse 11 in the way that I'm looking at this. Now, here's the thing. This is not the first time that this has happened. Okay. So Acts chapter four, what did we say happened in Acts chapter four? In Acts chapter four, you have the priests and Sadducees, I'm sorry. Yes, no, it's the priests and Sadducees arrest Peter and John and say, stop talking about Jesus. And then we read in Acts chapter four, verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. In Acts chapter five, we read that the high priests arrest and threaten the apostles and this is where they're starting to plot about plot against Jesus. But in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, we read, super important, okay, hold on to this. The word of God was spreading and flourishing. Same two words. Remember that. In Acts chapter 6 and 8, we read about Stephen and his martyrdom and what happens with him. And the church, uh, the, the persecution that begins happening under Saul you get, do you, what do you think is about to happen? Tell me. 
something good, right? The word of God is going to continue to spread. In Acts chapter 4, verses 4 to 8, those who are being scattered by the persecution under Saul go about and they're talking about Jesus. In Acts chapter 9, we have these two passages that tell us the people in Damascus and Jerusalem want to kill Saul. But then in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, we're told that the Spirit of God is strengthening the church. You see a pattern? And then in Acts chapter 12, our passage, James is killed. Peter's about to be killed. Peter gets out of jail, and the story ends with the word of God was spreading and flourishing. And then there's this weird story about Herod getting worms. It's weird, right? Except for that that story helps us understand how God protects his church. You see that? So what happens? What happens is that Herod, um, if, you can, if you can kind of picture in your mind the geography, you've got the Dead Sea, and then Jerusalem is right at the northern edge of the Dead Sea, and then there's the Jordan River, and then you've got the coastline. And so if you start going north and east, not all the way to the coast, but you start going north and east a little bit is the city of Caesarea. Uh, and that was a, a, an important uh, uh, regional city. So Herod goes up there, and he's having an argument with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's along the coast. Tyre and Sidon need Herod to be nice to them because they need food that Herod controls. And so they come in, and they're trying to do this political thing. And Herod, and Herod shows up, and he's putting on his royal garments. Now, what's interesting is that we actually have this story written by a different historian, a man by the name of Josephus, who writes history of this time period. Josephus tells us about this story. And what Josephus says is that Herod was wearing a robe that had a bunch of silver on it. Now, what happens when the sun hits silver? It, yeah, it's, you get bright, right? It's like, whoosh, right? And so what happens is that something's going to happen. So people, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they, they're being politically astute. Uh, and they realize like, oh, we need to butter this guy up. And so he's wearing this robe. It's got silver. It's shiny. And everyone's like, oh, you're like a god. And he and his arrogance is like, oh, you know, I'm pretty good. Um, and the angel of the Lord's like, oh, dude, I'm done with you. And gives him worms. And he dies. Now, Josephus doesn't say that he got worms, but Josephus does say that he died of a terrible pain in his stomach. I don't have to do with that, except I think that's what happened, right? So now you've got this story that seems really random, except for the fact that if you pull back and you see what Luke has been telling you all along, Luke has been telling us all along, at every step of the way, there has been this opposition to the church, and in every step of the way, God protects his people. And he doesn't only protect his people, but he also ensures that they spread and flourish. Now, if you have an ESV version of the Bible, your version of the Bible, your translation, says that the word of God increased and multiplied. And what's really fascinating about that, you know, like, we're, so the original language is Greek, and you've got different groups of people translating it. All of your Bibles are great. I'm not, I'm not trashing any Bibles. 
But, you know, you've got to make decisions about how you translate words. And so the ESV here, what it does is it helps. It's helpful in that there's this one other place where those two words show up. And the NIV doesn't, uh, doesn't use the same terms, but the ESV does. For some strange reason, those two words, as I was studying the passage this week, I was like, man, those words just like seem important for some reason. And so I started doing some digging and I did some more digging. And I found 6-7, which I made reference to before, where those two words show up right next to each other. And then there's this other place in between chapter 6 and in between uh, chapter 12. There's this other place where these two words show up. And it's a really fascinating story. And I think it's part of Luke's what Luke is trying to communicate to us as the author of the gospel. I'm sorry, this is the author of Acts. So in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is uh, giving his defense of the faith to the religious leaders. And so because he's talking to the religious leaders, he's drawing heavily from the history of Israel. Uh, And what he says is that when, listen, when Israel was in captivity in Egypt... They increased and multiplied. Same two words. Now, I saw that and I was like, you got to be kidding me. Because what Luke is doing is he's helping us see. He's making a connection of dots for us. God protects his people. And he allows his people and his word to increase and multiply no matter what type of soil they find themselves in. So you can look to the Old Testament and see that when Israel was slaved, enslaved, they were slaves. They were being worked seven days a week. They increased and multiplied. And then we see in the book of Acts that the book of Acts tells us that in the face of all of this opposition, the church... The word of God increased and multiplied. Now, do we see that happen today? So this past week, some of you know that over the last, uh, not, not since COVID, but before COVID, for a number of years, I had the opportunity to travel to Cuba to do uh, training with churches in Cuba in two different cities, three different cities in Cuba. Um, and there was this big meeting where all of these churches that have been doing different types of ministry in Cuba uh, just happened in Havana last month. And I was invited, but I, I, it's, a, it's a little bit more expensive to fly to Cuba from here than it is from the East Coast. Um, and so I just couldn't, for, and that's not the only reason, but I just couldn't go. But I was, um, I was talking to my friends who were at that meeting, and we're just kind of bring, they're bringing me up to speed on everything that's happened in the island. So now, you have to understand, okay? So, so um, Cuba is poor, okay? Cuba is a communist country. Cubans have been indoctrinated with an atheistic worldview. They have been indoctrinated with the idea that there is no God, you understand? So it is a post-Christendom context of a different kind than what we have, but still a post-Christendom context. Well, COVID is poor. COVID has hit Cuba uh, just like it hit everybody else. But in Cuba, what happened is the church, they couldn't meet in person. So do you know what they did? 
they started house churches. So I'm, you know, I'm here in my little, my, in my home, and I've got my neighbors on either side, and I'm like, hey, do you want to come over and study the Bible together? Right? And so 700 house churches started in Havana. That's not the other cities of the, of the, of the country, right? Um, 700 house churches, people coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the faithfulness of God's people in the face of opposition, right? Of, of an atheistic worldview and an utter lack of material resources. So my friend was in Cuba and he said that he stays with this one, um, this one individual. They have an Airbnb. You can get Airbnb in Cuba. Um, uh, and, and the guy said, uh, he's like, I'm sorry, um, I, ha- I, can't, I can't buy you any food. And I was like, well, my friend was like, well, I can give you more money. He's like, no, you don't understand. There is no food. Like, you can give me all the money that you want. There's no flour in order for bread to be made, right? And yet, and yet, 700 house churches. You see? You see, you see the God that we worship? You see the king? Psalm 2, God laughs. He laughs at the attempts of human monarchs and kings and presidents and prime ministers who attempt to stop the work that he is doing. He laughs. He holds them in derision. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Kiss the sun, lest you perish. This is the gospel, and it's hard, right? You're like, oh, like he really gave Herod worms? Yes. Right? It's, I'm not saying, I'm not delighting in that. Like it's, it's, it's weird, and you're like, oh. But that's, that's what the length that God will go in order to protect his people. Now, let's bring all this together. So what we've tried to do over the last six-ish weeks uh, is I've tried to lay out for you an understanding from the book of Acts, from specifically looking at the ministry of Peter, uh, of what does it look like for us to be a church in San Diego today? And, and what I've tried to do is lay out a few kind of principles and pillars for us to hang our minds on as a church. Uh, and what we've said is this, that, that, the, that as a church, we need to be a community that is reconciled. And so what that means, very practically, what that means is that we need to work against the seeds of prejudice. And let's just be honest, we live in the United States, let's own our, let's own our history, the seeds of racism that are part of our culture. We need to work against those things, right? And as we work against those things, there are going to be people that don't like that. There are going to be people who, follow, who claim to follow Jesus, or actually even people who follow Jesus, who will not like that, right? And so there will be opposition. We have to be uh, an evangelistic community. We have to be a community that talks this, tells the story 
of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. This shares the good news, the gospel, the good news of what God has done and is doing in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and future return of Jesus and how that changes your life. There are going to be people that don't want to hear that. There will be opposition from them. We need to be a spirit-filled community. Uh, we need to be a community of people that are seeking to follow Jesus. And that means that, that the way that we live our lives matters, right? That going to church on Sunday and then living Monday through Saturday, like everybody else, that's not a contrast community. That's a reflective community. And that's not what we're called to. And guess what? You'd be opposition for that. And that we need to be a praying community, that we need to be a community of people that don't see prayer as simply the last result. Well, there's nothing else we can do, so we might as well pray. Look, I'm guilty of that. So I, you know, I hope, like, I totally do that, right? I'm sure many of us do that. But rather, we need to be a community that sees prayer as the first response. Oh my gosh, that's happening. Let's pray which is incidentally why we're doing prayer groups for Lent. Join, please sign up. Um, this is the kind of community that we are called to be, and it will, it will face opposition, both inside the church and outside the church. And so that's why we end this series by saying, hey, remember in the midst of that, that the king that we follow is a king who will protect his church. Now that does not mean, that does not mean that he will prevent you or me from experiencing real suffering harm. Remember how the story starts. James is dead. But it does mean that his church will be a protected community. Uh, It does mean that he is working through his church, that he is working through Harbor. He's working through First Pres. He's working through Living Water down the street. He's working through uh, North Park Pres and Res Pres. Uh, He's working through other churches uh, in our community that follow Jesus. And we may not agree theologically with them on many things, but they follow Jesus. They love the gospel. That he's working through them to allow the word of God to be increased and multiplied. Church, don't you want to be a part of that? Yeah, right, right. That's the longing of our hearts. That's what we want to be a part of. And that's, but we can't do that unless we're all in it together, or at least we won't be as effective. Um, So what we're going to do next, kind of preview for the, is we're going to, one of the, one of the dynamics of following Jesus in a post-Christendom context is that we need to learn the language of lament. Uh, We need to learn how to see the brokenness and sadness of our world and not just go, that's too bad, and go back to dinner. Uh, But actually to learn the language that scripture gives us to call evil, evil. Uh, That's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks. And then, having done that, we're going to spend three, four weeks delighting in the power of Jesus' resurrection. We're going to look at all of the ways that the resurrection of Jesus undoes the evil and brokenness of our world. Um, Because we want to be people who learn how to lament, but we want to also be people 
who know how to rejoice in Jesus' power. You with me? All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a God who protects his people. We thank you that you are a God who, uh, who has placed your son Jesus as king. Uh, and that as king, that he has power and authority uh, over all. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Uh, and Father, we thank you. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have given us not just an ancient history through the people of Israel uh, in the early history of the church in the book of Acts, but in our own day that you have given us the example of brothers and sisters like the church in Cuba uh, to show us that you are a God who protects those whom he loves. Would you, Lord, uh, help us to hold on to that promise and that that promise would give us the boldness to be the kind of community that you call us to be a reconciled evangelistic spirit-filled praying community that seeks to point people to the beauty of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, look.